Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, worship team. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Luke, for uh, setting up communion. Uh, and it's my privilege to get to lead us into, uh, sorry, Luke, it's not the kickoff of a new series. This is the second week in our series on how to put the Bible, or putting the Bible in its place. Uh, in the fall of 2003, uh, as I was working as a young adult pastor, I was putting together plans for a re- spiritual retreat for college students. Uh, our plan was going to be to talk about why Christianity was true. And so I got the brilliant idea that what I needed to do was to go online, find a bunch of stories of people who used to be Christians and then had walked away from the faith. And my idea was then I would present these things at our retreat and then debunk them proving to the college students that Christianity was the one and only true religion and they could walk out bolstered in their faith. Except things didn't work out quite like I had hoped they would. In fact, in the planning, I almost lost my own faith. You see, this was my first time to be exposed to some of these stories and arguments. Some of the things I read about on an internet forum of people who had deconverted from Christianity were were rather stunning and shocking. Some of them very sad. And and I found myself not being, being able to go, oh, well, I see what's wrong with that argument. I found myself thinking, wow, I hadn't really considered that before. And rather than being able to debunk what they were saying, I found myself going down a very similar slide, questioning, have I fallen for the biggest trick ever? Like, is Christianity truly a hoax? Have I fallen for a sham? Because I don't know about you. I do not want to follow Christianity if it's fake. Like, I I don't want to say, well, you know what? There's a bunch of nice people. I'm just going to continue with it because, you know, I don't want to lose all this. No, like, I I probably could use my Sundays a little differently. You know, I'd probably spend my money uh, uh, quite differently. But if Christianity is true, then I definitely want to give myself to it because it changes everything. But how do you go about deciding whether it's true or not? Is it just a step of blind faith? Well, you know what? I want it to be true, so I'm just going to act like it is. Or is there some sort of way to actually begin to test and see that it is what we say it is? On that internet forum where I heard these deconversion stories, I noticed a pattern in a lot of the stories. Everyone's story was unique, but as you kind of collected them together, you began to see a pattern. Oftentimes, their story began with a very negative experience. It usually happened within a church. Sometimes it happened within their family, but it usually involved some sort of hypocrisy, some sort of abuse, whether physical, sexual, or emotional. But what I then noticed was rarely did someone just take that one experience and use that as justification for completely leaving the faith. Usually what happened was they took that negative experience to start them on a journey of trying to figure out whether Christianity is true and their way to do it was to study the scriptures. Many of them began to become convinced that the scriptures were wrong, they were in error, they were inconsistent, they were, they were just the product of humans. And in a sense, they felt that by debunking the Bible... They ruined the foundation and all of Christianity came tumbling down. So while their journey started with a negative experience, it continued through a justification that the Bible is wrong and so therefore they were right in staying removed from the faith. And so because 
the Bible is what is often attacked to try to get Christianity to crumble. Today, we're going to look at, well, is the Bible reliable? Because if the Bible is actually reliable, then that means that the stories in it, particularly the story of Jesus, is true. And that means we can take it at face value that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who descended to earth, lived a sinless life, but died in the sinner's place on the cross. But he did not remain dead. The Bible also tells us he rose again from the dead. If the Bible's wrong, we can ignore that story. But if the Bible is true and it is reliable, that story changes everything. It turns out, The skeptics and critics are right. The Bible is rather the foundation to our faith. Today, I hope to show you that the Bible is reliable. I hope that you, if you're kind of a skeptic, whether you're joining us online or you're here in the room, that you'll hear some evidence of why I believe the Bible is is true and reliable. If you've been wrestling with doubt, kind of like I did in that fall of 2003, I'm hoping that today will help you be reassured that the Christian faith is reliable. You can give your life to this. And if you're doing great in your faith, I pray that this just simply bolsters it and creates a greater hunger within you to study the scriptures. So today, we're going to start like we did last week with 2 Timothy 3. So if you brought a Bible, please open it up to 2 Timothy 3. If you did not bring a Bible... um, don't worry about it. This is, this is a really weird sermon today. We're only going to look at these two verses for just a little bit, and then I'm just going to be referring to the Bible. We don't have time today to jump into a bunch of places. If you want to jump into the scriptures a bit more, I invite you to go to Luke's new growth group at 11.15, 11.30, and then you can jump into some stuff uh, a little deeper. All right, we're going to read today like we did last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So as we get ready to read from the Word of God, let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that you would work today. Uh, I pray that the things that you've put on my heart to say would actually be from you, that the evidence that I, I uh, provide today would be exactly what you want people to hear. I pray for the skeptic that listens to this. Um, while I am not the most convincing of people who d- does not have the, the, the academic uh, pedigree uh, to, to back this all up, I pray that they would see and hear what you have, have done and it would convince them that your scriptures are reliable. I pray for the person wrestling with doubt that today this would be the message that they needed to hear and it would help them to know that walking with you is the greatest thing that they could possibly do. And Lord, for those that have been walking closely with you, they're doing fantastic in their faith, I pray that this would just continue to increase their hunger for you and your scriptures. So God, we ask that you be our teacher today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My freshman year of college, uh, I got put into Western civilization. Every freshman uh, had to take Western Civ. However, that year, that fall, the guy who normally taught the class was on sabbatical. And so I had this adjunct professor, and she was honestly the worst teacher I'd ever had. Not just like worst professor I ever had in college, like worst teacher ever. Like uh, my kindergarten teacher was way better than her. Like what made her so bad? It was how incredibly inconsistent she was. Like honestly, you would walk into class, and here it is Western Civ, 
And, and we would be all over the map in timelines, in countries. I mean, there was no adhesion to it at all. No sort of theme to link things together. When you wrote a paper, there would just be a grade at the top. There would be no markings. You would have no idea. Why did I get an A? Why did I get a B? Why did I get a D? Like, it just, there was a letter, and that was your grade. When you tried to ask her about it, she avoided you, she wouldn't answer your questions, or if she actually answered a question, it, it felt like it had nothing to do with the question you just asked. Like, she was so frustrating. And I was not the only one who felt this way. Pretty much everyone in my class did nothing but talk bad about her behind her back. I am, I, I have no proof of this, but I would not be surprised if you'd said that at the end of the semester, when the, you know, teacher feedback forms were passed out to students, she probably got the worst ones ever. And I highly doubt they ever brought her back. She was awful. If the Bible was like my Western Civ teacher, the skeptics and critics have a really good case. Because if it is that unreliable, if it's just all over the place, there's no way you could ever use it to teach you. You would not trust it to correct you. You would not feel like it could train you in righteousness. But the fact that Paul, in writing this to his uh, mentee, his protege, Timothy, and saying, hey, all scripture, it's useful for this, means that Paul is convinced it is reliable. So what I'm going to set out to do today is try to convince you that it's reliable, and I'm going to give you six pieces of evidence. If you are a note taker, for about the next 30 minutes, I'm going to be your favorite person in the world. All right, get your pins ready and take copious notes. In fact, you may need to read, write really small, or you might even need to use the front where it's kind of blank. All right, you're going to love today because your hand's going to have a cramp and you're going to walk out of here with all sorts of notes. Um, anyone here like puzzles? Okay, good. For one second, I thought, oh no, I'm the only one. Uh, okay, yes, I, I like puzzles. In fact, I have a puzzle right now down in my basement. Unfortunately, for the last couple of weeks, I haven't had time to, to go and really work on it, um, hoping I might get to this afternoon. But I, there's just something satisfying about finding that piece and, and seeing where it goes and, and putting it in there and watching the whole picture come together. Now, if I had brought one of those puzzle pieces with me, though, today, and I held it up in front of you, I don't think any of you would look at it and go, oh, look, a puzzle. No, you'd say, that's a puzzle piece. Likewise, when it comes to the reliability of scriptures, as I give you these six evidences, I don't think any single one of them all by itself is enough to prove the Bible to be reliable. Now, a couple of these I think are really amazing. But I think for us to see the full picture, we need all of these pieces. But with that said, some critics think that if they can just discount one of these, the whole thing crumbles. I'm convinced that even if you got rid of one of my evidences today, the other five are still strong enough to help you see the picture, to see the Bible is reliable. So what are the six pieces of evidence I want to bring to you today? The first one is that uh, self-admission. Number one is self-admission. We need to at least admit and recognize that the Bible claims in and of itself, to be the word of God, right? With, within scripture, we hear God say that he does not lie. I think there's something inside of us that, that realizes for God to be God, he, he cannot lie. And, and then, so therefore, if he cannot lie, and then these things say this is the word of God, in a sense, God is saying this is reliable. Now, I realize that this could be just considered circular logic, that the Bible claims it's reliable, so therefore the Bible is reliable, right? So like I said, this is just one piece. I think by itself, this is kind of a weak one. 
But when you start combining it with everything else, it helps you see that the Bible really does see itself as reliable. I mean, we see it in the way the Old Testament prophets talked. They would say, listen to the word of the Lord. And they felt that what they were giving to the people was something that they could rely on. They needed to listen to. They needed to allow it to teach them and correct them and train them. Or look at the New Testament. As they write about things in the Old Testament, they write as though it is reliable, as though it is the word of God. Even within the New Testament itself, there are a couple of times where like uh, in Second Peter, Peter writes about Paul's writings and even points out that Paul's writing is scripture. Or, or in the book of Acts, a couple of times, there are sermons, and you see the way they go about teaching, they're teaching convinced that what they're giving the people is the word of God. So the, the Bible believes, well, it's not a person, but the Bible presents itself as though it is reliable. So we at least need to recognize it. Again, basic uh, uh, argument, I, I, it's not convincing by itself, but I think it's, it's important to, to notice. Number two, historical accuracy. A second piece of evidence is historical accuracy. When, uh, whenever a crime is committed, uh, you may have law enforcement agencies who would try to build a case against a, a particular defendant, and they might use DNA evidence. All right, we cannot build a case on DNA evidence to make the Bible guilty of being reliable. But what we can look at is archaeology. The more archaeological digs that happen the more they continue to prove the Bible to be reliable. There are all sorts of cases throughout time and history where certain historians looking at archaeology said, you know what, there, this, is, this, this guy doesn't exist because we have no archaeological record for it. And so, for instance, King David. For a long time, historians thought King David was a mythological type figure. I mean, like, a guy slays this giant, you know, all the wars. I mean, everything seems to go just right for this dude. It, it, he can't have been real. And so they discounted him. Until archaeology unveiled records showing that there had been a king of Israel known as David. And the archaeological record began to show the Bible to be true. Or how about in Luke? Luke 3.1. Uh, Luke writes about this guy named Lysanias just mentions that he's a tetrarch. However, historians said, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Lysanias was not a tetrarch. He was the ruler of this other, other providence. And, and this was like, you know, 50 years prior to when Luke is writing about. Luke's wrong. Until archaeology unearthed records to show that there were two Lysaniases, one of which was a tetrarch within the Roman government. You know, I mentioned Luke. I'm going to stick with Luke for a second. Because of all the biblical authors, Luke is one of the most detail-oriented. Luke wrote both the gospel that bears his name as well as the book of Acts. When you read Luke, and especially Acts, what you see is name after name after name. And he doesn't just name them. He often says where they're from or, or maybe who their family is. Or in many cases, he, he names them as like some sort of like a government official. He gives titles to so many of them. So if anyone is set up to be wrong, it's Luke. And yet, archaeology has proven Luke to be 100% accurate. Not, not just like 95% accurate. No, 100% accurate. There are non-Christian archaeologists who would at least say, well, yeah, when it comes to Luke, I don't agree with all these other things, but when it comes to Luke and his historical details, the dude's on. He's accurate. Now, it doesn't mean that his theological statements would be correct, but at least his historical records are. 
But what this does for me is that when you see someone be that detail-oriented and be correct in all of it, it helps me see that, okay, so then maybe when he talks about Jesus and his death and resurrection, that that is accurate as well. But maybe archaeology isn't enough for you. Okay, how about you consider this? Ancient historians go right along with much of what the Bible says. You've got guys like Tacitus, uh, Josephus, uh, Pliny the Younger, other historians. They, they write about these events that oftentimes the scripture also writes about. Okay, but maybe you'd, you'd push back and say, well, Aaron, maybe the Bible includes these like true stories, these true historical events, and mixes it in with fictional stories. I mean, because come on, Aaron, really Noah's Ark, like Jonah and the whale, Nana in the wilderness, like maybe they mixed those in with the real events like war and, and line, you know, like lineages. Maybe they mixed those in to make their story sound more plausible. Or maybe because they had been an oral culture for so long, they thought that these oral stories of like, you know, Jonah and the whale, they thought it was historical, but really it was fictional. I, I have one friend who would say that the Bible is the word of God. But he does not believe that stories like Jonah and the whale actually happened. He believes God gave us that story because there are deeper truths to it. It's like a parable. So he discounts it as a true historical event. It's merely metaphor to him. I'm going to actually talk about this a little later when we get to evidence number six. All right? So if you want to stick an asterisk there, get ready to draw an arrow. We're going to revisit this a little later. I'm going to explain why I think these were actual historical events all right but the main thing is that i see the bible as being historically accurate evidence number three fulfilled prophecy fulfilled prophecy in the old testament there are over two thousand prophecies but the thing about them is they're often specific that that's the issue with prophecies the more general you make them the more accurate they can be. But the more specific they get, the more problematic they become. For instance, if I stood up here and said that in 2024, a great leader will rise up and be elected president of the United States. Okay, that's so general that whatever happens here in two years, I could claim to be correct. However, if I said that in 2024, a great leader will rise up and be elected president and she will be a third-party candidate from the state of Idaho, and she will serve a four-year term, be defeated, and then come back four years later and win a second term and be considered the greatest president ever. Okay, now, if you're a betting person, do not put any money on this whatsoever. Right? That is statistically impossible. I mean, first of all, I just got rid of all of the entire male gender, so it has to be a female. Right? She can't be from Iowa. She can't be from South Dakota. She has to be from Idaho. She can't be Republican or Democrat. And she has to win, then lose an election, and then win again. Right? This is almost impossible to happen. You see, when I just make a general prophecy, a great leader will arise. Yeah, you can claim anything fulfills that. But when you get really specific, now the problems begin to set in. You begin to narrow it so much, it becomes almost a statistical impossibility. Of those 2,000 prophecies in the Old Testament, over 300 of them are about a Messiah. But they don't just say, a Messiah will arise from among the people. 
No, they say things like, a Messiah will arise, and he will be born in Bethlehem, of the line of David, born to a virgin, and his hands and feet will be pierced. And like, they go into great detail. It gives them so much detail, it almost becomes a statistical impossibility. In fact, a guy by the name of Peter Stoner went out and, and, and took eight of the most famous prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. Only eight, not the 300, just eight. Began to calculate what is the probability for any person to fulfill this. When he put all eight together, he statistically reasoned it was 10 to the 17th power. If you need to see what that looks like, it's a one with 17 zeros behind it. Right? So one chance in all of that. Just eight. Okay, but maybe, maybe you're not a numbers person. Maybe you're more visual. You're an artist. Okay? Then Peter Stoner wrote this. He says, take 10 to the 17th silver dollars. Lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the state two feet deep. Now, mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly. Blindfold a man and tell him that he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? And that's just for eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300. And this doesn't even get into the other like 1,700 prophecies in the Old Testament. Doesn't even touch on the other, you know, prophecies that are in the New Testament. Some of which were fulfilled in their times. Some of which are prophecies about the end times. It is statistically impossible. And yet Jesus fulfills them to me this is evidence that the bible is reliable evidence number four unstoppable durability unstoppable durability it seems that about every year two years or so one of the major magazines like time life national geographic they will put out some sort of article about jesus Usually those articles will say things like, new archaeological evidence proves that Jesus isn't who we thought he was. And they, they will make all these claims of, of why we've been wrong, and so therefore maybe the Bible isn't quite as trustworthy as we thought, and these scholars and skeptics will point out all these errors. And yet, a couple of years later, another article comes out saying different things, but kind of the same thing. And then a couple of more years after that, it, it, it's because... Christianity just keeps going. Like the Bible, it's almost like the Bible doesn't even notice or listen, doesn't care about these articles. It's just going to keep trucking. The Bible has been the number one bestseller through all of time. Like it's not even close. This is why New York Times completely ignores its sales as they put together their bestseller list. 160,000 Bibles are sold every day. 160,000. Thousand. This equates to, uh, oh, well, I, I guess some Bibles give, get, are given away. But last year, 2021, 80 million Bibles were produced. Now, this counts all sorts of different languages. The Bible has been translated completely into 717 languages. Another 1,500 and, and odd some amount have at least the New Testament completed in their language. And then there's even thousands of other languages that have at least a book of the Bible translated. Wycliffe Bible translators and other Bible translators, their goal is to get the Bible into every language with a certain number of people within that, that uh, language group. 
This is why the Guinness Book of World Records estimates that since the printing press was uh, uh, invented and began to print Bibles, that there have been an estimated five to seven billion Bibles printed. And so, yep, every year, every other year, article comes out, no, it's all wrong. And yet the Bible just keeps on trucking. It just keeps going. It seems almost unstoppable. Now, in defense of the critic, just because something is popular, just because something is sold a lot, doesn't necessarily mean it's right. I mean, I think all of us right now could think of like cultural fads that at the time were really, really popular. Everyone's doing it, spending their money on it. Now we look back and go, oh, that's, that's a little embarrassing. Can't believe we were actually into that. But we could even look at other cultural factors and see something that everyone at one point believed and now we don't. We, we look at it and realize that's ridiculous. Like, for instance, at one time, people were convinced that the earth was flat. Now, that's kind of a fringe group. Another time within history, people thought slavery was fine. Some people even went so far as to use the Bible to justify it, even though the slavery in the scriptures is completely different than indentured, uh, like the, the uh, uh, slavery that, of our day. And so just because the Bible sold a ton, that doesn't automatically right then and there say, well, man, it must be reliable. And so let me take this even further. Let me show you just how unstoppable the Bible has been by looking at the manuscript evidence. A manuscript, when, as we t- use that word, we're talking about a portion of scripture from ancient times. Now, it, it could be like an entire book of the Bible, but usually a manuscript is like a portion of a scroll, just a page. Sometimes it's nothing but a little fragment, right? May have only one verse, four verses, like there's not a whole lot there. May, may even have been ripped or something. And, and so like the sentence ends up going off, but they still count that as one manuscript. Now, it might bother you to know that of all of the manuscripts that we have, not a single one of them is original. We no longer have the original documents that these supposed biblical authors were God breathed through to write these things down. But before you let that bother you, I want you to realize that no ancient work has an original document. All we have are manuscripts. And let me help put this into perspective. Earlier, I mentioned Tacitus. Tacitus was a historian. If you look at this chart, you'll see that Tacitus uh, wrote several books. We have books one through six. Seven through ten have been lost. And I think we also have books 11 through whatever. But on books one through six, we have one manuscript. And that one manuscript is 650 years after Tacitus originally wrote. All right? Next, Josephus, I had mentioned. He wrote The Jewish War. We have nine Greek manuscripts for his work. And those nine manuscripts are anywhere between 1,000 to 1,200 years after he originally wrote his work. And no one looks at it and goes, oh, but hang on, you know, this must, Joseph, Josephus must be wrong. No, most people realize, yeah, this is what Josephus wrote. How about next? We'll go to the, one of the bigger ones, Homer. If you combine the Iliad and the Odyssey, his famous epic poems, we have over 300, all right? So we've just jumped from nine to 300 manuscripts. But notice it's also the oldest. They are anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 years. I, I could go on. Uh, they, they've recorded things of, from Caesar, Shakespeare, I mean, all sorts of uh, some of these ancient and, and, uh, antique uh, works of literature. All we have are the manuscripts, and they're, they're often thousands of years afterwards. All right, but, but what about the scriptures? If you don't know this, the New Testament alone has over 5,000 manuscripts. 
and they date between 30 to 100 years after the originals were written. And this doesn't even begin to touch on the Latin translations that we have of the manuscripts or other translations. If you could combine the Latin Vulgate and other translations, that 5,000 number becomes 24,000. Like, we have a wealth of documents. But you know what? Let's just burn all 24,000 manuscripts. Historians are going to go nuts if we did that. But let's just burn them all. And now, let's go out and see, can we reproduce the Bible? And let's go to the church fathers. The church fathers are considered the next generation after the apostles. So like the disciples of the apostles. Let's look at their works, their writings. If you were to look at all of the works of the church fathers, you would be able to reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. All of it except for 11 verses. And most of these church fathers were right there learning directly from the eyewitnesses that were around Jesus. Thankfully, though, we don't have to go and burn the 24,000 manuscripts. You realize what having such a wealth of manuscripts does. It allows us to take them and compare them. And we sometimes will see a, a change or a difference in something. But when you start looking at it, you realize, oh, this one over here, this little collection, they say it this way. But the vast majority put it this way. This is probably what was in the original. And certain documents start coming out and you start realizing this seems to be more trustworthy. And you can start comparing and contrasting. It is why conservative biblical scholars believe that what we read in our English Bibles is probably 99.56% close to the originals. What you read is reliable. You're, you're there. Maybe a word is different. Maybe we, we're missing something. This is why we don't say that our, our English Bibles are the inerrant word of God. We say that they're inerrant in the original documents. But we are so close to the originals. This is how durable the Bible has been. But, but not only has the Bible been uh, durable uh, uh, just th- uh, in the face of skepticism, uh, no, nor durable because of the sheer number of manuscripts, I also want to see that it has been durable through time. Right? And I'm going to do this through our next piece of evidence. Number five, the Bible shows remarkable consistency. Remarkable consistency. In 1947, uh, a little boy, his family were shepherds, realized one of their sheep was lost. So he was tasked to go find it, and he suspected that the sheep might be hiding in these caves that were a ways away from their home. So he made the trek out there, and he gets down to the caves, and he had to kind of climb down. Well, the caves are dark, and so rather than try and go in the dark and, and, and find a sheep, what he would do is he'd throw a rock in, and the rock would hit the wall, bing, 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 bing. And if the sheep was in there, it would scare the sheep. The sheep would bleat, and then he'd know my sheep's in there, and he could go in and get it and bring it out. So he'd walk up to one cave, throw a stone in, ping, 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 nothing. Climb over to the next cave, throw in the rock, ping, 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 nothing. Well, all of a sudden, one cave he comes to, he throws the rock in it, and instead of hearing ping, 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 he hears crack. He hears like shattering of pottery. What, what was that? He makes his way in, and he finds all these huge, like, vases, clay pots, and inside of them are scrolls. That is how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It became known as the, like, one of the greatest archaeological finds ever. It was found, like, by a little shepherd boy. Why was it so significant? Well, because of the vast number of, of, of scrolls that were in there, of the incredible condition they were in, 
You, you see, the, the way the environment was, it protected them. Usually the, the uh, papyrus that was used would, would break down. It was set just right, and, and they were preserved. But then also, when they began to unroll them and to very carefully study them, what they discovered was that these dated roughly a thousand years before anything they had prior. Right? So they just basically jumped a thousand years. But when they compared the new discovery, a thousand years older, to what they currently had, they discovered almost no changes. It had been consistent. Now, there were some changes. But 99% of the changes were spelling changes. Kind of like in English, we spell color C-O-L-O-R. But in England, they spell it C-O-L-O-U-R. We drop out that U. It's the same word, just a spelling change. That's what happened in the majority of the differences in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, and that 1% that weren't just spelling changes? Not a single doctrine in Judaism or in Christianity was changed Absolutely remarkable how consistent it was through time. But I want you to also realize that the Bible is remarkably consistent within itself. Not just through time, but even within itself. I mean, just stop and think about what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, primarily the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and then there's some verses, I mean, uh, some chapters in Daniel that are in Aramaic. And then they're over a wide range of genres. I mean, you've got poetry, you've got history, you've got lineage, you've got instruction. I mean, it's just all over the map. And yet, there is this incredible consistency from Genesis to Revelation, To me, that is evidence of God at work to work through so many authors over so much time. Now, there are skeptics who say, yeah, but Aaron, there's all sorts of inconsistencies. It's not as consistent as you think it is. I I should have brought the, the chart that I'd used several months ago, but some of you might remember one of my sermons, I shared a chart that was put out by Sam Harris, the noted author and atheist, and he worked as a graphic designer and it had all those red arcs. Maybe some of you remember that. And he showed thousands and thousands of of, uh, contradictions. And yet, when you began to dig in, you discovered that a lot of his supposed inconsistencies were actually due to a lack of understanding in biblical interpretation. Uh, I mean, the large, large, large majority of them were so easily explained that even other atheists said, Sam, this is embarrassing. You need to remove this. And guess what? He did. You You can't go on to his website and find it anymore. But some of the others, some of the things that people say, well, that's inconsistent, they're, they're actually paradoxes. They're intentional. For instance, in the book of John, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. However, earlier in the book of John, John the Baptist, who the book's not named after, by the way, John the Baptist describes Jesus as the Lamb of God. Uh, so wait a second. Is Jesus a shepherd or is he a lamb? Or... Christianity says that Jesus is the great high priest, and yet he's also described as the sacrifice. Or or how about the fact that Scripture says that Jesus is fully human, and yet we also as Christians believe he's fully divine? Which is it? The answer is yes. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is both the shepherd and the lamb of God. He is fully human and fully God. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not inconsistent. It's a paradox. We live in tension. 
To be a Christian is to live in that tension. Christians, through the study of the scriptures, believe that there's one God revealed in three persons. I don't fully understand how it works. All I know is it's true. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. And so what many people try to say, well, that's inconsistent. The scriptures are actually showing to be incredibly consistent. So there is consistency through time, but there's also consistency within. All right, my last uh, piece of evidence. Exceptional acceptance. Ex- ex- uh, I can't say it. Exceptional acceptance. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a day and an age where no one seems to agree on anything. Don't believe me? Just go home and turn on cable TV. Right, we can't agree on politics. We can't agree on race. We can't agree on how to combat the coronavirus. We can't agree on sports. I mean, we can't agree on anything. And we can't even agree on what to have for lunch. I mean, this is just how we seem to be living these days. And so I think it's absolutely exceptional that we have Christians through so much of time, through so much of culture, in different strains of Christianity, who all say together, the Bible is the reliable word of God. I mean, to have Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox all affirm this idea. Now, next week, as we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're going to see that the Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox do have difference of opinions of what actually comprises the word of God. But it's not like the Protestants are saying... The Bible's the word of God. And the Orthodox are over there going, no, it's not. Like, there's, there's just incredible acceptance. It's exceptional. However, there's one more acceptance that, that really is why I chose the word exceptional. And that is the acceptance of Jesus. Jesus, in his teaching, refers back to the Old Testament and talks about it as if it is reliable. And if you remember back in evidence two, I said we would talk a little later about Noah's Ark and Jonah the whale and stuff. That's now. Because when Jesus talks about those events, he does not talk about them as though they're fictional. He does not talk about them as though they're parables for us to just learn something through. He talks about them as though they really happened. Why? Well, because if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if he really is the eternal son of God, It means he was there when Noah is climbing up into the ark. He was there when the big fish swallowed Jonah. He was there when the manna is being sent to the people out in the wilderness. These crazy, ridiculous, miraculous stories, he saw happen. So for him to deny them, to call them fictional, is in a sense to lie and to deny himself. And he can't do that. He saw it happen. So he can only speak about what he saw, what he knew And so when Jesus talks about those things, he's talking not only because he was present, also as God the Son, he's there with the Spirit as the Spirit is breathing through these biblical authors, writing the things down that God wants them to have. That's why in the book of Mark, when Jesus teaches, he says that Jesus taught with authority. The first part of authority is author. Jesus is the author of the scriptures. That's why he has such authority, and that's why he talks about the Old Testament, as if it is reliable. This is a key critical point in our understanding. Because Jesus said that the Old Testament, that all of the law and the prophets point to him. And so if Jesus were to say, yeah, you know what, the Old Testament, it's got some really good ideas in it, but yeah, it's not God's word. 
the whole entire thing comes crumbling down. But for Jesus to say, yeah, the whole entire Old Testament points to me. There's 300 prophecies that I fulfill. All of it points to this moment in time. And I'm going to give my life, but rise from the dead. And he pulls it off. So I I don't know about you, but I'm going to kind of stick with the guy who has the power to raise himself from the dead. And if he says the Bible's reliable, I'm going to go with him. So yeah, to me, it's convincing enough. The archaeological record, the ancient historians, the, the, the acceptance. But for me, it ultimately comes down to Jesus. Because he says, this is the word of God, and this is reliable. You can read it, and you can trust it. Even in it's translated into English, into these different translations, the scholars have gone and studied those 24,000 manuscripts to try to put together something to help you find Jesus and follow him. So now it, it comes down to you. Because I've put the evidence out there, but now it's up to you to decide, do I believe it? Is it enough for you to say, I put my faith in this? To me, it's, it's convincing. To me, you would be foolish to not look at this and go, I, I put my faith in it. I put my faith in Jesus. But it's up to you. But if you're convinced, will you give your life to following Jesus? Would you allow the Bible to be put in its proper place in your life? Would you allow God to stir up a hunger in you? And it isn't just something you read about on Sunday mornings, but something that you're reading on Monday and Tuesday and every day. Allowing these words to penetrate your soul because God breathed them out for a purpose. He loves you. And he wants to shape you into the image of his precious son. He wants you to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. The scriptures are reliable. Will you allow God to use them? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do this in us. That you would help us to see your scripture for what it is. That we would trust it is reliable. So Lord, for the person that that has been wrestling with doubt, maybe I haven't done a good enough job convincing them. Would you continue to teach them this week? For the skeptic who still is scoffing, Would you just allow this to be a seed that is planted and begin to take root? For the person who maybe is listening to this and has deconverted and wandered away, I I realize I have not answered every question. There's even things in the scriptures that I fully don't understand. But God, I believe you've given us more than enough to realize that your word, this Bible, is reliable and we can read it. And so I pray that that person would begin a journey back towards you. That while they may have deconverted and left, that you would resurrect their faith and you would build it stronger than ever before and they would know you as their loving God. So God, thank you for giving us your word. Help us to be people of the book, to allow these, these words to become a part of who we are, to affect the way we think, to affect the way we use our time, the, to affect the way we use our, our money, the, uh, the way we use our words so that we might become more like Jesus who displayed the farthest amount of love by going to the cross to die for our sins. Help us, God, to show that kind of love, to give our life, to follow you, to be a blessing in this world, to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. In Jesus' name, I pray.